I had a friend very recently post a question to Facebook about receiving feedback and criticism and how to deal with it and how to, how to become uh, well acclimated to it instead of just being triggered and having a negative response to it. And that actually kind of led me down this mental path of thinking about kind of kind of about perception and you know, do you see the world as it actually is? And there's one theory about that, which is a philosophical theory, the one of naive realism. And according to naive realism, the answer is yes, you do see the world as it is. And I guess like, up until recently, this what you see is what you get theory of your mind was kind of how we explain stuff. And yet if that's true, it, it seems as though maybe the contentious and very, very oppositional polemic stances on this last presidential election doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> Let's stick with the narrative of the last presidential election as, as like a baseline to talk about this idea. And let's say that we pick one side and say, well, of course, the last president uh, colluded with Russian powers to get elected because there were deep state agents upsetting things and there was already a power structure here. And so he had to do everything possible um, to succeed. And it's only logical and ethical that in an unethical system, that would be the correct thing to do. And that technically that was like the most uh, ethical choice that somebody could make in a broken system. And that's definitely a viewpoint out there. Um, that the only way to not buy into a system that is treasonous against its own citizenry is to actually commit treason. On the other end of that narrative is that very simply colluding with outside powers outside of a nation and bringing them in to uh, <laughs> regulate a separate nation's uh, <laughs> democratic process and subvert it is in itself treason. Now, 
both of these arguments can be well argued and logical and there are definitely two sides to that I know which side I'm on <laughs> um, but like why why could you look at the exact same amount of data um, that that Russia basically interfered with democratic elections in the US and postulate two totally different uh, interpretations of what that means. One of the easiest ways to explain this is to understand that you often delude yourself and your ability to perceive can be dramatically altered from within. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is look it up. I mean, look it up. Psychology has been around for the last hundred years. And in that hundred years, most of the research has come to suggest that you and everyone else still believe in some weird form of naive realism. If you don't think this is true, take a look at the attacks on media and where that's going and why that's taken hold. And even attacks on authority. Because it's easier to believe what's right in front of your face than something handed to you. And on top of that, like way <laughs> on top of all of that, is is that that ultimate sort of highfalutin goal of objectivity. It's gotta be objective, gotta be rational. Well, the thing is, is that shit doesn't even exist. You can never know an objective reality. Everything that you do know, it's just a subjective fabrication. You never really experience anything but the output of your own mind. Memory, perception, imagination, these are all representations, not replicas. And I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, well, there's got to be some sort of objective reality out there. What about videotapes and uh, cameras? They take an objective picture. And, uh, yeah. Well, sure. They take a objective picture. Unfortunately, it's still that little meat wad rattling around in your skull cage that's perceiving that picture and informing you of what it means. But I'm a person. I'm, I'm completely, 
I'm I'm objective. I'm not constantly subjective. I I I can I can empathize with other people, and I have my I have a mind that's able to. No, you don't. You don't. Your your brain plays tricks on you, and that's how it is. And if if you don't if you don't believe me, which which you still may not at this point, what I want you to do is face straight forward. Look directly, and without shifting your eyes anywhere while looking straight forward, tell me if you see your nose or not. Okay, so if you're like most of us, your answer is no. But the truth is, is that actually your mind edits out the visual distraction of your nose. And if you close one eye, what you will see out of that one eye is actually the frame of your nose from, from one side. And if you close the other eye, you'll see it on the other side. But when you're staring straight forward, your nose disappears. It's a visual illusion that your brain creates. And your mind is filled with these. And these are the types of things that your brain does anyway. Um, another really good example of this is you have an imagination that you have a consistent field of vision in front of you, right? You look up, you can see everything above you, that's fine. You look forward, you can still see everything above you. But the truth is, is if you take your hand and dip it down from in front of you, down into like where your forehead is, there's actually like a blind spot, even if you look up, that you can't see above your forehead. That that unless you do that with your hand and wiggle your finger there, your brain kind of tells you that, oh yeah, you can see that spot, but you can't. It's actually why when you were probably playing some sports as a kid, you got hit in the face with a ball a few times because you have a blind spot right there in front of your noggin. <laughs> so how does this relate? It's a good question, but what you have to realize is that these same types of things about your brain, about how it developed, that all develops kind of in the same way. Your brain does what it does for survival. And you don't need to see those spots in your face because they don't help you. And there's a ton of other ways and other things that your brain does that it ignores or shortcuts or makes smaller because it doesn't help you to actually process that extra stuff all the time. Well, like, what else would that be? Now there's this thing called heuristics. And heuristics is sort of the low processing shortcut of the brain. Now, it's really great for survival, right? It, it sort of autopilots survival skills, um, gets you out of problems. It, it creates these sort of unconscious rule sets for how to deal with stuff. Unfortunately, what it also does is shortcuts what should be a logical decision, often for an emotional one. You're probably wondering how that works. But think about it. If somebody's running for office, 
say presidential office. And you have the ability to sit down and read everything about their history and go back and analyze all of their behavior and learn about every aspect of who they were. You can do that or they can come on, have an ad, and you can get a sense of their character emotionally from the ad and snapshot all of it. Now, to be clear, this, this is not a conscious choice. You already have these things running. It's already going. The machine is rolling. You've been programmed already. So the people that you trust are the people that you trust because you've learned to trust them over time since you were a child. So when the person that looks like a trustworthy person comes onto the television, you immediately feel more trust for them. And that emotional feeling actually resolves a lot of the logical stuff for you that you normally would have to process. That's the shortcut of the heuristic. You can just take that feeling and apply it everywhere. Now, in addition to all of that, there's of course the dangers of logical fallacies. And that's basically when you've used your heuristic to make a decision and then you try to make it doesn't always have to be this way let's be clear but then you try to make a uh, logical argument from the end of the argument back to the beginning so let's go with the politician example again you've already decided to trust this person So, instead of saying, because of these facts and logic and everything I've researched and found about this person, they are trustworthy and thus I will vote for them, what ends up happening is you get a sensation of feeling like they're a trustworthy person because of your heuristics, and you work your way back through the pattern of what could be logical data, and you deny the data, you rework it and you find your way to making them a trustworthy person. Now, there's another portion of this where if you chose a heuristic or you had that heuristic fire off and then your next choice was to then say if you had a politician running for president, say you ignored much of what they did on their campaign trail, but because you trusted them and they got to where they were at, you were like, I trust this person, I'm going to vote for him. And then you did. There's a thing called cognitive dissonance. It's where you can't really hold two opposing ideas in your head at the same time. Well, not, not really. You can, but one informs the other.
And cognitive dissonance is, is why people get upset when their beliefs are challenged. It's, it's a mental conflict that occurs when beliefs are contradicted by new information. This conflict activates areas of the brain in a person's identity, and it causes like an emotional response to threats. The brain kind of signals an alarm which goes off when a person feels threatened on a deeply personal and emotional level, causing them to like shut down and disregard any rational evidence that contradicts what they previously regarded as truth. And there's been some like longitudinal studies about different groups of people um, involved in sort of uh, arguing with each other over time and how they end up growing deeper in their own beliefs over time despite being handed more and more evidence to the contrary of their beliefs. Which is just crazy. Or maybe it's just human. Now there's more interesting stuff about cognitive dissonance out there that, that I think needs to be examined. And one of the things is kind of how it functions. Now, now take this with a grain of salt because cognitive dissonance is a theory, but I think it's a good one. Cognitive dissonance theory proposes that people seek psychological consistency between their personal expectations of life and the existential reality of life. I mean, that makes sense, right? To function by what that expectation of existential consistency is, people practice the process of dissonance reduction, dissonance of reduction, in order to continually align their cognitions or their perceptions of the world with their actions in the real world. Um, The creation and establishment of psychological consistency allows the person afflicted with cognitive dissonance to lessen his or her mental stress by actions that reduce the magnitude of the dissonance realized either by changing with or by justifying against or by being indifferent to the existential contradiction that is inducing mental stress. How does that look? Well, let's use the example of eating a donut, but not wanting it. The first example is we can change the behavior or the cognition. I'll eat no more of this donut. The second thing we can do is we can justify the behavior or the cognition by changing the conflicting cognition. I'm allowed to cheat my diet every once in a while. The third way is we can justify the behavior or the cognition by adding new cognitions. I'll spend 30 extra minutes at the gymnasium to work off this donut, by golly. The fourth way is to deny the information that conflicts with the existing beliefs. This donut is not a high sugar food. That's probably the most common one that happens. So that gives us a why. Like, how could somebody come up with this thing? They've chosen they have the cognitive dissonance, they're there. That's why we have the two sides. But it doesn't bring us any closer 
as to how to resolve or who's right or what's right. And I mean, this spirals out across things that are just as clear as the rules of our government or elections. You know, in sports, there's very specific rules and there are still contentions across how plays are called in electronically recorded sports where it's very clear uh, how the play was played. And yet, people will still interpret on top of those very, very clear calls. Well, these people are being more rough. These people are not playing fair. The attitude of that person was disrespectful and caused this other thing to happen. Just total BS. But also, how do you unpack that? How do you reach across that void? How do you change an opinion about what seems to be objective data? And I mean, that's a way bigger question. And I still don't know. If anybody listening to this has an answer, <laughs> please send it in. Um, thanks for listening. I hope this was interesting for you all. Um, if anybody has uh, more questions about cognitive dissonance or other psychology things, I just love that kind of stuff and would love to hear about it. Uh, thanks. Bye.